You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Hey, disciple-making people. (laughs) Great to have you. Great to have you. Great to have you on the program today. Welcome to the podcast. Remember now, the place for a man, for a woman, completing all their powers is in the spiritual fight, and right now, today, making disciples of the nations. So stay tuned, stay encouraged. We have a rendezvous with destiny. All right, we got a kind of some fun things have happened to me this week, so I want to share uh, at least one of the fun things, and we're going to do a little bit of news, maybe just a couple of news items before we get to all that. Uh, and this one is not a news item really at all, except that it was news to me. Uh, once a day... In the morning, during my devotional time, one of the disciplines I have is to go to, I say discipline, it's more of a means of grace. Jesus blesses me because I do this very thing. I think I've told you before about a guy that I've never met, only known by reputation, a guy from Memphis named Soup Campbell. Yeah, kind of a fun name, Soup Campbell. And Soup used to tell his disciples that, If God answered every prayer we have, not much would change. And what he meant by that was we need to learn how to pray for much more than simply our private concerns, the things that are bothering us, our little health things, that if God answered every one of our prayers, not that, you know, I live in the Jackson, Mississippi area. So the Jackson metro area, how much would change in Jackson overnight if God answered all my prayers overnight? That much or really not much at all. And the same thing for the world. And so one of his challenges was to go and pray for the nations. And so one of the things I took up on that was to go to a a website called operationworld.com. And if you go there, there, actually it's .org. So operationworld.org, and it has a prayer calendar. And so I'm looking right here on the prayer calendar for August. And August 1, you pray for Kenya. And you do the same thing for August 2. But you work your way down to August uh, like 4, and you're praying for North Korea. August 5, you'll be praying for South Korea. Go down to August uh, 11th, and you'll be praying for Lebanon. August 13th, you'll be praying for Liberia. Well, you know, so I, I keep going down. And the nation that I prayed for on the day that I did this podcast was Mali. All right? So that's what I did. But a couple of days ago, uh, I uh, was really convicted. Uh, Maldives. I looked through Operation World. I had to even pray for them. I don't even know where that is in the world. Well, you look it up. They give you a place. This is where it is on the map. And uh, this is the thing you need to be praying about. And it'll give you several things. But this sentence really confronted me. I mean, I, I was praying for Maldives. And uh, notice all kinds of things that you can, you know, you ought to be praying for. Uh, it tells you how much of Maldives is evangelical, and it happens to be 0.1%. And it's 99% Muslim. And then you go across and say, man, one of the highest divorce rates in the world. 
crime rates, gang activity continue to rise, child abuse and teenage drug abuse, uh, up to 70% of teens' drug abuse indicate huge problems, deep problems with Maldives. And, uh, of course, I'm very interested in all that. I want to pray, and so I do. I pray. Now, I don't pray for 10 or 15 minutes on Maldives. Probably could and probably should. But I spend a couple minutes praying for a nation of the world, as OperationWorld.org tells me I should. But look down there. A 0.1% evangelical? God bless the salt and the light of Maldives. That 1% evangelical do something incredible, extraordinary through that 0.1%. That that Muslim nation might come to know you. They might put their faith in you, put their trust in you as Lord and Savior. So I'm clipping along and I'm I'm praying these things. And I, as I'm reading through, I get down to this line, that, this sentence that really confronted me. And it's this, quote, quote, the perception of Christianity is so bad. Now, get a load of this now. Remember, it's only 0.1% evangelical. How could they have any perception at all? But I'll start that quote again. The perception of Christianity is so bad, largely due to Western media and tourist immorality, that political opponents use the term Christian to slander one another. They call each other Christian when they really want to insult you. Oh, Jesus, help us. <laughs> you know, when it says bring honor to his name, apparently we haven't done that there. And so just to live the kind of life and recognize that you and your marriage and your family and your church brings honor to his name, or it might bring the other thing to his name, and that is huh, insult. And what we ought to do is to know that by his grace, we live the kind of lives that bring honor and only honor to his name. And one of the reasons we do it is for the nations. Mm. Yeah, that really struck me this week. Then, uh, of course, got a little interesting thing here today. Um, the President of the United States, uh, in, but largely in, in, by the way, I pray. I hope you do too. I hope you pray for the President of the United States every day. By the way, I do, and I pray not only for him, I pray for uh, a good many others. I pray for the majority leader of the, the Senate. I pray for the Speaker of the House. Uh, I pray for the Supreme Court by name, by name, every, everybody by name. Uh, I thank God for them, and I pray that God would bless them, give them wisdom. I pray for uh, statewide officials, and I pray for local officials as well. So, you know, it takes a little while to work through all that, but I do it, and I do it because well, it, it, they, they, I think they need to know that there are Christians all over this country lifting their name up, that they might be blessed and they might know the wisdom of God. So anyway, having said that, I, I, I disagree, as I suspect many people who listen to this podcast do, disagree with much of what Joe Biden stands for and what he's all about. But having said that, I want to pray for him regularly. This out that uh, they have a plan, Joe Biden, the Biden administration has a plan to forgive student loan debt for people from middle class and lower 
income household. Now, the, the middle class for them uh, is all the way up to $125,000. So if you make more than that, then you don't get the apparently the student, student loan debt canceled. Uh, and by the way, I guess that's my point. We'll get to that here in just a minute. The U.S. Department of Education says that on the whole, the average undergraduate student graduate with, with about $25,000 in debt. Well, listen, most of the people I know who are going to school right now are going to private Christian colleges. And when they go to a private Christian college, I can assure you that the average debt is probably, for those who are in debt, now not everybody is, but for those who are in debt, it, it, it goes way over $25,000 and frequently goes up to the six-figure number. To me, it boggles the imagination that you would leave undergraduate study and be six figures in debt. It happens to a lot of people, though. Now, that, how much federal student loan debt are we talking about? Well, $1.6 trillion, and that's for about 45 million borrowers. It is a significant burden on America's middle class. Well, yes, it is. And no, you don't. <laughs> You don't have to go into debt. What we do, if we're going to go to college. Well, no. If you're going to go to the college of your choice, maybe. But you can choose not to go into debt. And this is what I'm thinking right now. I do think it's a moral issue. Uh, for those who decided not to go into debt, what about them? Now, maybe this is all selfish because that's what we did. We sent six kids to private Christian college, which is the most expensive kind you can go to in this country, private Christian college. And so if you're sending them there, you're going to think, man, you're going to have to go into debt. But no, when we, basically, when these babies came into the world, we started praying then, God, we want them to go to college and we'd love for them to go to this college and we'd like for them to go debt-free. That was a long time prayer request of ours, debt-free college. And what we told them was, if you can't go to the college of your and our choice, then we're going to go to a college we can afford. So we meant business with it. And guess what? God blessed the Freedom family with no college debt. Now, some miracles had to happen for that to happen. We get that. We understand it. We praise God for it. So some miracles had to happen. But now what is being said is families like ours and families of poor people that decided not to go to college because they couldn't afford it and families that just worked hard and didn't go into debt. They figured out how to not to do that with a school. I think the thing that we got to remember is simply this. When you go to college, it's not just a matter of, hey, uh, let's go into debt or not go into debt. Uh, it's a matter of responsibility. You've got to make some moral choices. And I think going into debt uh, for something like that, I think that is a moral choice. Uh, Matt Walsh said recently, there's there no such thing as student loan forgiveness. There's only student loan transferal. So the debt doesn't go away. The debt is transferred from the person who took out the loan to someone else who did not take out the loan. Did you get that? There's no debt cancellation. No, it goes somewhere. It goes to the people who didn't take out the loan. Now, that's a moral issue, and it ought to be for all of us. Now, 
I'm not griping. I'm not complaining today, except as a matter of public policy, I think I ought to have a voice. I think you ought to have a voice. But let me just say this. We raised our family not to have any debt at all. We don't go into debt for anything except the house. And once we came to the conviction, we probably shouldn't be in debt for that either. We paid it off as fast as we possibly could. Every thin dime that we had left over went into that. So we got rid of the house real quick. But we've decided we're not going into debt for anything except for that. That included cars, included education, included, well, included everything else. We're not going into debt. And if we have to change our lifestyle in order to not go into debt, we'll change our our lifestyle significantly. But here's the point. We think the life of no debt is the abundant life. We think it's the good life. We think the life of responsibility, of the moral choice not to go into debt. We think the life that says we are frankly going to live within our means is the abundant life. And we think that because we have seen, well, first off, I think it's biblical. The second off, I think when you look out there and notice people who don't live like that, they have stressed out lives. They are worried all the time financially. I mean, and I don't think, think that's the abundant life. But I think that for college loans, too. If, if somehow someone would come along, some president say, you know, we're going to cancel all the debt, which means it's not canceled. It comes to people who didn't take out the loans. It goes right back, and somehow we're going to pay for it. The people who didn't take out the loans are going to pay for it. But let's just say they did that. On a personal level, I wouldn't gripe about it that much, except as a matter of public policy. I think I ought to let my boys be heard. But as far as personal finances, I'm not going to gripe about it. Because y'all, for the last several years, putting our kids through college debt-free, that is and has been for us the abundant life. And I want to live that kind of life of abundance. I think God blesses that kind of living. Now, the other little point here I want to bring up uh, before we get to the, the the main dynamic of the program today is this. I saw this from a, this it looks like a, a Nevada newspaper. Brookings Institute found that the current cost of raising a child through high school is $26,000 more than it was two years ago. So if you're going to have a kid, no, it's going to cost more today than ever, 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 ever before. A married, middle-income couple with two children is likely to spend $310,000, an average $18,000 a year, to raise their youngest child born in 2015. Now, 9% increase from what was estimated based on the inflation rate two years ago. Yada, yada, yada. Hey, y'all, listen, I, I by no means am a fan of... Uh, the recession. I'm, I'm no fan of the inflation that's going on, but I don't buy these stats at all. It costs you hundreds of thousands of dollars to raise a kid from zero to 18. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And the fact that we buy into that means that we have fewer kids because it's so expensive. And so evangelical Christians today and Americans as a whole are having fewer kids than ever before because we have bought into the lie that it costs so incredibly much to have kids. And I'll just tell you, it costs some money, not nearly as much what they're saying. I mean, I got a friend that just adopted two kids, Get them into this house. Why? Because they have need. 
if they don't come to us, they're going into a bad situation. And for whatever it's worth, they're not worried about how much it costs. Forget how much it's going to cost y'all. <laughs> Listen, I'm going to tell you right now. The Muslims don't care how much it costs. They're having lots of babies and they're taking over the world because they're having lots of babies. They're not growing by conversion. Muslims don't grow by conversion, not on the whole. They're growing because they have lots of kids. Mormons have lots of kids. Catholics have lots of kids. Hey, evangelicals, what are you doing? And what we're doing is we're buying into this line that it costs 100000 per kid, $200,000 per kid. You can't afford it. And I'm thinking, well, when that all adds up and all the money that I've made or not made across my adult life, guess what? It doesn't add up because it doesn't cost that much. And there is a cost in not having kids. God says, I bless people who have kids. I bless families that have kids. I bless folks that adopt kids. I bless families that foster kids. I am in the blessing business, and I love to bless those who have decided to be fruitful and multiply, which is, by the way, the first command of the Bible. And it's a pretty wise idea to go ahead and obey his commands. Now, that uh, we're going to use that as a sort of a the transference from that to this. I uh, was with the grandchild of a very prominent uh, theologian, very prominent uh, evangelical American, and uh, within my own tradition, Wesley Arminian tradition, uh, the probably the most prominent guy in that as far as stuff that's happened in the last 50 years. Uh, there is a book called Holy Happiness. It's a study of Genesis 1 to 3, and it was written by Dennis Kinlaw. And Billy Coppage is his grandson and a friend of mine and a former student of mine. And he was in town and he wanted to have breakfast. We went out and had breakfast and he handed me this volume. So the grandson of Dennis Kinlaw handed me Dennis Kinlaw's new book. I was as honored as I could be. Holy Happiness, a study of Genesis 1 to 3. So I recommend this book to you. In fact, anything that Dennis Kinlaw has ever written is something you probably ought to read. Go to the search engines. And, and if you want a one a, day, a great one a day devotional, that would be this day with the master. Brilliant stuff, wonderful stuff, incredible. If you like doing the Oswald Chambers one a day thing, wow, Dennis Kinlaw's got a great book like that. I really like, of course, I'm a preacher, but I really like his preaching in the Spirit book, and I think that's great not only for preachers but for anybody. Uh, lots of great. Get everything he's got, y'all. Go go look him up, Dennis Kinlaw. But this is his newest book. It has been blessing. In fact, he gave it to me yesterday, and I'm halfway through it. And that's how good it is. And he says, Genesis 1 to 3 are incredibly important. You, uh, you will not find anything in the Bible more important, more critical, more foundational than Genesis 1 to 3. It's a chief cornerstone, he says, in our understanding of humanity's nature and divine purposes. And you don't even think about trying to understand the New Testament without understanding Genesis 1 to 3. On he goes. It's really great stuff. Can I just share a few things out of that book with you that I think you'll love? It's Kinlaw, so I almost assure you you're going to love it. He says, you know, science can never adequately handle a one-time event. That's why science can't figure out Genesis 1 to 3. That's why science is intimidated by Genesis 1 to 3. And the reason science is intimidated is because they can't handle 
something that only happens once. The scientific method needs to be it needs to have testing and, and proving things. But listen, Genesis 1 happens once. <laughs> if there's no repetition, no pattern, nothing can be tested, nothing can be proven. So there's no way that science can ever deal with a unique event. And that's the reason science can tell you nothing about the virgin birth or the resurrection or Genesis 1. When somebody tells you that science cannot speak to this question or that science shows that the virgin birth was impossible, it basically means that the virgin birth is impossible if there's nothing outside of the realm of scientific methodology and if there are no unrepeatable events. And guess what? This was unrepeatable. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, he says, what's incredible about that statement is any child understands it. I mean, they taught us that in Sunday school. Those of us who went to Sunday school, we were taught in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So really, from our get-go, those of us who were in Sunday school, it was never any problem for us to believe that in the beginning there was God plus nothing. One day, God spoke and acted, and there was God plus something else. Now, <laughs> you think about it. This is the most sophisticated intellectual concept that the human mind has ever entertained. I mean, uh, maybe the most brilliant, he says it, maybe the most brilliant mind who ever lived, someone like Aristotle. He couldn't even think the thought. Do you know why Aristotle never understood it? He never had a chance to go to Sunday school. Now, we laugh at that. But it's incredibly true. A kid who is six years old in your Sunday school class has reached the sophisticated intellectual concept that the greatest mind in human history never could understand. Plato certainly never entertained this idea. And if you go on in their minds, Aristotle and Plato's, in their minds, matter was eternal and anything new was just a new combination of things which already existed. But if you study the history of human ideas, you will find that that simple statement in Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created, cannot be found anywhere else in the literature of the world unless the Bible has already been there. <laughs> so he just, I mean, get this book, y'all, Holy Happiness by Dennis Kinlaw. It's a study of Genesis 1 to 3. And he holds off and says that kind of thing over and over and over again. He says the God in Genesis 1 to 2, uh, incredible. The Hebrew God is the only God in the ancient world who was above nature. Now think about this. The only God in the ancient world who was above nature. No person has ever been able to get a God outside of nature. All other gods are located firmly within the natural. I mean, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Hittites, the Canaanites, gods, gods were all, they, they were all trapped in nature. But not this God. The, uh, we were taught this intellectual concept that this is a God outside of nature. He created nature. Before him, it was God plus nothing. After him, there's God plus something else. And I love what he says here. When we see him for who he really is, when we see him for really, it's a different world. But how very few people get that different world. The United Nations hadn't learned it. But <laughs> he holds off here on the United Nations. In the United Nations building, I just looked it up, by the way. Yeah, you can look it up. 
go, go, go see this. It's the United Nations building. There's a meditation room dedicated to stillness and peace. Did you know that? Yeah, you, you can go there and meditate. Here are the men and women trying to find peace in the world, trying to help people live in brotherhood with each other and attempting to solve the problems of health and, and, and poverty and mental illness. They come together and they build a room where they can go and meditate, where they can go and look for help. Now, apparently initially, the only object in the room was a portion of a petrified log with a high polish on it. But now, if you go look it up, there's a block of iron ore, an altar of sorts, nothing to indicate that there's anything outside the natural world to which we can look for help. Isaiah told about a man, everybody remember this in Isaiah, a man who went out in the woods and cut a tree down. With half of it, he built a fire to cook the food to feed his family. The other half, he made a symbol for his meditation room. And Isaiah laughed at him and said, we have a God who's better than that. So the United Nations says, let's go to nature to solve our problems with each other. The first verse of Genesis says, let's look to the one who is outside of nature, who transcends nature, who invented, created nature. Let's go to him for help. We might have a whole lot better outcome. Fascinating. Great stuff. Get this book, you all. Holy Happenings, a study of Genesis 1 to 3 by Dennis Kinlaw. One of the things, all kinds of, I'm just zipping along here. Just, I, I read, I've read, it looks like about, I've read about three-fourths of thing. I'm almost done with it. But my goodness, I'm just, the, the things. One of the things I got marked here is this. What's God's will for humanity? The climax of the whole creation is so that God and man, God and woman, could meet each other every afternoon in the cool of the day. Kenlaw says, oh, I love that truth. The climax of creation is fellowship and communion with God. A relationship, a walking, talking relationship with God. Any little wonder when Jesus shows up and he starts getting a discipleship group together, he basically says, come walk with me. So this book, just all kinds of really wonderful, incredible insights, clipping along here, just trying to figure out what is there I want to uh, tell you about. One of the things he brings up is uh, Psalm 8. Y'all know Psalm 8. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Keith Green has a wonderful uh, just rendition of this. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength. And then this great question. And I do believe this thing is set up on question and answer. Question. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the answer is, you made him a little lower than... Now, depending on your translation, some of you read the King James Version, it'll say the angels. But the interesting thing here, and Kinlaw reminds us of it, the interesting thing is that the Hebrew says, you've made him a little lower than Elohim. Now, what the 
Old Testament scholars will say is, well, you know, you can use Elohim in varying ways. Yeah, okay. But at least one of the ways you could use it is in the beginning, Elohim created the heaven and the earth. That's what the Hebrew says. That's the first time it rolls around. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heaven and the earth. And then we're finding out, wow, we've been made a little lower than Elohim. Extraordinary stuff. Extraordinary stuff. During the Korean War, in the midst of the battle over Seoul, Korea, when the communists were trying to hold Seoul, Bob Pierce, founder of World Vision, found himself in the middle of the fighting. The United Nations troops were trying to take the city, and he was a reporter. So in the midst of the shell fire and the death, he heard a little voice. He could not believe what he was hearing. It was that him. This is my father's world. Y'all remember? This is my father's world. Oh, rest me in the thought. He went searching. I'm trying to find the singer. Who in the world singing that song in the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all this hell, all the shelling, all the fighting? And he found a boy with his younger brother. Shells dropping all around, stench of death everywhere. The big brother had his little brother pinned up in the doorway of a store. So the little boy in his panic couldn't escape and get killed. Big brother was holding him in the safety of the doorway and singing to him, this is my father's world. Oh, rest me in the thought. Where do we find that thought? We find it back in Genesis. On and on this volume goes. Good stuff, great stuff, incredible stuff. Well, just just another thing or two, just to bless your day before we uh, we sign off here. I uh, I noticed here in Kinlaw's volume that one of the things he wants to talk about was sin and how sin entered the world. The serpent tempted me, and so I ate, and that changes everything in human history. Now, without question, he says it's the most important event other than the creation of the cross. It's huge. Its impact impacts you and I, dear listeners, today. But he says something. I want you to notice that the whole account of sin entering the world and changing everything right now to this current moment, I want you to notice that the whole account is written in 13 verses. Now, the arithmetic of Scripture is sure interesting. I've often thought about the fact that there are 12 chapters devoted to the story of Joseph and two chapters devoted to the creation of the world. It may be that one pure man is what God's story is all about. Why write volumes on the creation when that is not what it is all about? What is it that you get with this one holy man? And that's what Joseph was. In these 13 verses, you get the story of everything that went wrong with creation and inside the heart of humanity. When I read that from Kenlaw, I thought, maybe, just maybe, we talk about how sin, sin enters the world, but maybe, just maybe, there are those of us who pay way too much attention 
to the serpent of our lives, way too much attention to the devil of our lives, and way too little about the holy man, the holy woman he wants us to be and how that's going to happen. It'll have nothing to do with the devil. It'll have everything to do with Jesus, with the spirit of the holy, filling us to the very brim of our lives. Now, I'm going to finish this book tonight. I'll probably be in bed when I do it, and I'll think, man, I wish I would have had this program today to share a little bit more. But I'd love for you to get this book. I'd love for you to meditate on it, and I'd love to see the power of Genesis 1-3 to to come more alive in our lives than ever before. The name of the book, Holy Happenings, a study of Genesis 1-3, to a book given to me yesterday over breakfast by Dennis Kinlaw's grandson, and I'm so very thrilled that I have it in my possession. Now listen, I want you all to do something. We're a discipleship program, which means we love discipleship groups. And if you want a quick start uh, program, I mean, if you want to get going on 5Q discipleship, that's what this program is largely all about. We love discipleship groups, and we also love what we call the backside of the card, which is the discipleship life. Go to 5, the number 5Q discipleship com 5qdiscipleship.com and get your quick start guide on how to have a tremendous discipleship group. And my friends, that's a wrap. Been an honor to have you listening to Life-Changing Discipleship with Matt Friedman today. Check out our Facebook page, Life-Changing Discipleship, and then check out our books at amazon.com. Just type in Matt Friedman into the search engine and see what's offered. That's Friedman with two E's now, not one. And always, always tell others about a podcast. And remember this, my wife thanks you. My daughter thanks you. My sons and their wives thank you. And I can assure you that I thank you for listening to Life-Changing Discipleship today. So love God live clean, keep the faith, make disciples, and God bless you, dear friends. We'll see you back here real soon.